Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, news editor for Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. Hey everyone. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and now The World's End, the three Flavors Cornetta trilogy, three of the funniest films of the last 10 years, all linked by one thing. They were directed by Edgar Wright. And before we meet the man, let's have a look at the trailer for The World's End. And we're back. Just like the five musketeers. Three musketeers, innit? Well, nobody knows how many there were, really, do they? You know that the three musketeers is a fiction, right? Written by Alexander Dumas. A lot of people are saying that about the Bible these days. What, that it was written by Alexander Dumas? <laughs> Don't be daft, Steve. It was written by Jesus. Are we there, yeah? Let's do this! They haven't seen each other in 20 years. I'm free to do what I want. But tonight, they're returning to their hometown to finish the ultimate bar crawl. This is our chance to finally conquer the Golden Mile. 12 pubs, 12 pints. And this time, they're going to make it to the last bar, the world's end. Let's go! What do you recommend? Beer. We'll have five of those, please. Four of those and a tap water. What? Long time. Gary. Welcome. Bienvenue. Welcome. Well, it's weird, isn't it? You come back and everything's sort of different. I suggest you get on your way. Welcome home, boys. It's not us that's changed. It's the town. What are you doing? It's all right. I'm not trying to have sex with you. There's something I need to tell you right now. Unless you do want to have sex, in which case I'll tell you afterwards. Tell me right now. What did he say, sir? Newton Haven has been taken over by robots. Did you believe him? Pushing head back to London. A, we're all drunk. B, we've got blood on our hands. It's more like ink. We've got ink on our hands. Ah! From the creators of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Let's climb down the drain pipe. I got a better idea. Climb down the drain pipe. The only way to survive the night what? is to make it all the way to the world's end. Where are the others? They're blending in. Hello, I am a robot. We're just five friends on a night out, <laughs> having a good time. The world's end. What the hell is that? I... We are going to get to the world's end if it kills us. Oh, no. Please welcome the director of the World's End, Mr. Edgar Wright. Bounding on the stage with the energy of a man who hasn't done 18 press interviews today already. It's Just, true. Yeah. I'll try and make it sparky for you. <laughs> if you have a question, try and stump me with something I haven't heard before. And I promise I will answer it. And this is the 19th. This is your final interview about the World's End ever or on this stage of the tour? I think I had two more this week and then that's Two more it. this week. But okay. no, uh, yeah. What's the question you get asked most? For this movie, people always ask, are they drinking real beer? <laughs> Which is a fair question, but if you start to think about the reality of doing that, yeah. it, would be, it would be a nightmare. I think half the cast would be asleep in the afternoon <laughs> if you were drinking real beer. So the answer is no, they're not drinking real beer. So what are the quantities? Because you like to do a lot of takes, don't you? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we had these, uh, like, uh, we had these uh, trick glasses, actually, because the thing is, is that, like, every, every, it's not like the, the actors can't down a pint of even, like, uh, we had this, uh, I don't know, it was like sort of water with, like, burnt sugar 
and cream soda for the head. So easy to drink, but like if you're doing 10 takes of something, then it can be a bit troubling. So in some shots, we had these magician's trick glasses that basically have a, a glass within a glass. So you have the liquid all on the outside. So it's like drinking a fifth of a pint. <laughs> like, I'm not sure the actors, it slightly makes them seem less masculine by telling you this information. So but I'll reveal the secrets that they're not here. So. <laughs> and don't uh, some of the actors have to down a pint in the movie in less than what, seven seconds? Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah. There's, there's a bit in the movie, you sort of see it in the trailer, or maybe you've seen the movie, um, where they uh, like have to down their pint in time with a song. And so we, we, that's, that's where the magician's pints came in. Because everybody could do it, but the idea of doing more than one take of it was mm. like potentially ambitious. So we actually had a, 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 we had a kind of test of it. Like You can see it on the making of where um, we all tried to down... This is going to sound truly pathetic, <laughs> but try to down a pint of water in like seven seconds. Uh, and Paddy Considine, Eddie Marzan, and Nick Frost could do it. And Simon Pegg, Martin Freeman, and me could not do it in that time. <laughs> <laughs> this is a truly pathetic footage of me trying to down a pint of water in seven seconds and getting most of it down my front. <laughs> I'm just uh, telling you like it is. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to make out that I'm any like sort of better a drinker than I am. <laughs> so how many people here have actually seen The World's End? Let's have a show of hands. Okay, there you go. That's a fair amount. Okay. Um, so let's go back right to the very beginning then, because this started off, this was inspired by a pop, pop crawl you actually tried to do in Wells, your hometown. Yeah. But was that 12 pubs? 12 pints? It was, was, that the, was that the whole idea? Yeah, it was... Um, I come from a little town in Somerset that was also the location for Hot Fuzz, Wells in Somerset. And when I was 18, I decided, um, much like Gary King in this film, that somehow I, I felt like I could conquer my town by drinking a pint in every pub. And um, I was wrong on two counters. A, that's impossible. And B, I couldn't get through all the pubs. So my hometown at that point, I think it had like 15 pubs. And I think between somewhere between six and seven, <laughs> like I was out. Um, and then... I wrote a script about it when I was 21 yeah. called Crawl, which was just about teenagers drinking. And obviously, I never made it. But then later, myself and Simon and Nick uh, were on a road trip down to Devon. I think it was after the second series of Space. And we went uh, on a sort of uh, a long weekend away. And we spent a night in my hometown. And I tried to convince them to do it again with me. And this time, it was like a pathetic four pubs. <laughs> so I failed at this pub crawl twice. And I didn't make this kind of script. So it's always like been nagging at me. And so the idea came about, like, I was thinking, A, about that script, and B, about the second attempt at, like, grown men trying to yeah. replicate a teenage night out. And it struck me that that was more dramatically interesting. And so I told Simon about it when we were on a flight uh, promoting Hot Fuzz. And then that very quickly turned into the story with the sci-fi element mm. included, you know. Yeah. So uh, Crawl, I'm, I'm interested in Crawl specifically. I mean, um, how close did you ever come to getting that made? Oh, no, I didn't really go anywhere. Although it did have some, like my agent liked it. And actually, um, I'd say you did like an Andy Harris, like who was a producer at Granada and uh -huh. was one of the producers of The Queen. He really liked it. So there was some interest in doing it. But... Um, uh, you know, it was it was a very sort of like it was kind of exactly there was nothing else to it other than, and it also very much glorified it as well. Right. So it wasn't like uh, the 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 version like sort of fifteen years later 
is a slightly different take on the <laughs> events and more tragicomic affair. Yeah. So I think at the time it was more sort of much more glorified sort of version of uh, uh, like teens out drinking. Okay. Was it one of those scripts that sits in the, at the top of a, a pile in a drawer? Now and again you take it out, you look at it going, mm, maybe, maybe one day. Well, you know, it's one of the things when you look at old scripts, I sort of like that, like um, when you, I don't know if anybody else has this when you do sort of screenplays is like, you look at something old that you've written and it's really badly like, this, the, the font is wrong for starters. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like, it was almost like I typed the entire thing in like impact, which is, that doesn't look that great. Or dingbats, which would be much and worse <laughs> for a script. Um, um, but it's about six years between Hot Fuzz and The World's End. There were three years, obviously, between Sean and Hot Fuzz. Now, obviously, you went off to do Scott Pilgrim in the interim. Um, but if this movie had come together quicker, would you have done that before Scott Pilgrim, or was that ever part of the plan? Maybe, but I don't think it would have been exactly the same screenplay in a weird way. I think actually having the break from writing was good, because when we came back, even though we had the story worked out, I think when we came back, we had more to say, you know, and in that time, like, sort of, you know, both Simon and Nick had become, like, fathers and husbands, and, and so there was a sort of slightly different... Um, th yeah, I think it's better that we waited. I think it would have been a different script and maybe not, um, you know, maybe not quite as emotional. I don't know. Yeah. So how far did you get in 2007? Did you get to it? We just did the story, yeah. and then, and then, and then we, we thought we should get down and write that sometime. And I had even, um, like, uh, I think, uh, I wouldn't recommend this, but I'd even, like, taken my advance on the screenplay, <laughs> which, if I wasn't in a better situation with Work Title, they could have quite <laughs> easily sued me and said, where is that screenplay that you took <laughs> half the money for in 2007? Five years, five years, honest, <laughs> it'll be fine. So it sort of became, like, the, uh, uh, you know, like, so I think Eric Fellner, who is our, is our executive producer at Work Title, was very happy that we actually finally made good on our promise and finished it. But I, I'm very, it, was, it was very interesting. Out of the three screenplays that me and Simon have written together, it was the one that came together easiest because I think we'd been thinking about it for a long time. And when we actually sat down to write it, all this kind of personal experience came sort of pouring out and went straight into the movie, you know? Yeah. So when you, when you say you've been thinking about it for a long time, obviously you're thinking about themes, but are you thinking about specific scenes? Are you thinking about specific lines of dialogue? Because you guys have all these these lines of dialogue, you set them up you, and you, you pay them off later on, lots of callbacks. Are you thinking yeah. about those, writing them down over the, the five-year gap? Yeah, I think so. And, and I'm, I think occasionally we'd email back and forth when something new would occur to us. But it was pretty much kind of well worked out. There were some things that changed in that time. Like, so we had a sort of completely different third act originally. And it seemed like we were like, sort of, it was a lot of legwork to get to the final moment. And then we figured out a better way to do it. And then that was when the sort of, you know, suddenly like everything clicks into place. So sometimes it's something where you've kind of got the story, but you haven't got the last kind of half an hour. And then like sort of something sort of switches and you go, this, this is it. Now I can see the whole thing, you know. But there are things like there's one line in the film where I was about to tweet it just as a joke. And then I stopped myself and I thought, oh, no, I'll keep that. <laughs> like, that's another thing is don't burn, don't burn all your jokes on Twitter. <laughs> or just recycle them. No, no, it would be like somebody because then it would get around, and then people say, "Oh, you ripped that off Twitter." I said, "No, it's my, it's my joke." <laughs> Is Simon better at uh, keeping jokes off Twitter? Uh, yeah, he doesn't like sort of. Um, I think he mostly posts pictures of his dog. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, so, in terms of the writing of the screenplay, you guys, I'm sure, have you seen the previous extras on on Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz? So you've seen the, the flip chart. 
section because uh, Simon Edgar had this famous flip chart. And at what point does that start happening? You you basically lay out the entire movie on a flip chart before you start writing, or yeah, during? yeah, okay. It's a good thing to do. Like it's a good if you're working with somebody else, it's a good exercise to do because if you're co-writers, I don't think I've ever done it when I've been written something on my own. But me and Joe Cornish do the same thing. It's just writing out the entire story on a flip chart because then it's just like a roadmap to the entire movie. And, um, you know, if you're, like, sharing a wherever you're writing, whether you're writing at home or an office or, or whatever or some kind of writing room, it's good to just have it in the corner of the room so it's always there, like, and you can just flip through the entire film. So something that we'd always done, it just seemed like a sort of a... Um, uh, and quite a, a good way of doing it. And just, it's something like, I, I find it easier that if you keep writing out the, the story over and over again, mm -hmm. eventually you'll just start writing the screenplay because the lines will just, um, <laughs> the lines <laughs> are just, you know, di dialogue starts to drive the plot points and then like, and then you've started writing the screenplay essentially. Oh, so you, you don't have just one flip chart. You write over and over and over and over again or? I think we had like more than one. Yeah. 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 That's the problem, you know, you your pages, you can just rip them off and, and throw them away. And uh, I've always wanted to know this, this is a very, very weird question, but please go with me in this one. Who does the handwriting? Because it's very, very neat. Is it you or Simon? It's a bit of both. Simon is neater than mine. You can kind of see there's two different handwriting styles. It's a sort of John Doe type. <laughs> Simon, Simon's is the John Doe, very, very tight. And mine, mine have always got big, like, E's and C's, so mine is a bit messier. Mm. I like drawing, like, cloud diagrams and stuff. Sometimes I have those kind of like flow chart diagrams or whatever, yeah. which makes it look like sort of a madman has drawn it. Yeah, absolutely. I know when you're writing the screenplay, obviously you know you're going to be writing for Simon and Nick Frost. And I, I love the, the sort of switch you did with the, the, the sort of personalities, the dynamic in this movie. So Simon's a more uh, egocentric, extroverted one, and Nick is, is the opposite. Uh, can you talk about that, that decision? Well, right back from when we did Spaced, Simon would always complain that he'd written all the funny jokes for other people. <laughs> and especially in, in, like, Sean, he would say, Nick's got all the funny lines. And then in Hot Fuzz, he goes, Nick's got all the funny lines. So I think with uh, sort of the third film, having played, like, the everyman in Sean and the straight man in Hot Fuzz, he wanted to be the wild man in this one. And then also Nick, I think, you know, shows a completely different side of himself. And Nick is like, I would say that Nick Frost in the, like, in the 10 years since Sean, like, when we made Sean, he was a bit more like Ed. And now he's a bit more like Andy in that like, he is you know, a husband and a father. And I sort of said to Nick, when we wrote that character for him, I said, I want to see the Nick Frost, um, the angry Nick Frost that I only see when you're on the phone to the bank <laughs> <laughs> or like the phone company. So uh, it, it was a sort of terse side of him. But we did do this thing as well, like that, uh, <clears throat> we got from a screenwriting book that on final draft, we would write the names of the actors instead of the characters in yeah. the first draft. Yeah. So you'd have the names of the characters, but we had a draft that just for our sake said Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Martin Freeman, Paddy Considine, um, Eddie Marzan, and it was written on the page because then you start to kind of like tweak lines for each actor. That sounds like a Martin line. Oh, if we do that, it sounds more like Martin would say it. Okay. And then you, before you hand it in, you take all of that off and then put all the character names in. But it was a really good exercise. Um, but I think somebody walked in on us when we were writing. Because we did this other thing, which is an amazing thing with an HDMI cable, <laughs> it's like, which we never did with the previous films, is just get a big TV, plug the laptop in, and have Final Draft up on the big screen. Because then one person can write and the other person can always... Yeah. You know, we take it in turns to type. Okay. 
But then somebody walked in when we were doing it and they saw this sort of screenplay page and it just said like Martin Freeman signed painting <laughs> for us. So it looked like we were making an extremely, uh, you know, like a, <laughs> yeah, like a, me like a meta video. film. Yeah, like an expensive home video. Exactly. Yeah. But what would have happened? Because Martin Freeman was fairly busy doing a, uh, a little movie called The Hobbit. What would have happened if he uh, had to fly away? Did you have a backup in mind? Yeah, Elijah Wood. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> or just de-aging him. Um, we've got a clip There's probably now. a yeah. siege. They probably scanned Martin Freeman on the hobby. You could probably just post him in. He's in a computer. Yeah. <laughs> He's in a hard drive somewhere. Screaming, let me out. Uh, we, have a, we have a clip now from the film. This is a, the first time in the movie that the growing up Gary and Andy, Simon and Nick's characters, uh, made. I don't know if you want to elaborate more on what we're about to see here. No, I think this is just their first meeting in the movie. I think this is, this is, these clips are probably done pre-spoiler, so there's, like, if you haven't seen the movie, this will spoil nothing, don't worry. We had ourselves a little idea. As you know. Yeah, we're going to go back to Newton Haven. Why? For some unfinished business. That's a joke, right? Five guys, 12 pubs, 50 pints. 60 pints. Oh, steady on you, Alky. I haven't had a drink for 16 years, Gary. You must be thirsty, then. <sighs> but we can go back, see the guys, chew the fat, it'll be just like it always was, except this time, we're gonna finish this thing once and for all. You have a very selective memory, Gary. Thanks. You remember the Friday nights. I remember the Monday mornings. Yeah, that's why we're going back on a Friday. <sighs> why do you think none of us live in Newton Haven anymore? I don't know. Because it is a black hole. It's boring. It always was and it always will be. It's only boring because we're not there. It's pointless arguing with you. Exactly. So come. That's not how you secretly feel about your hometown, is it? Black hole, boring. No. No, I have a... <laughs> Long pause. No. <laughs> no, I, no, I like my... I mean, it's that thing I think that, you know, I think a lot of people have that when they're... When you're living there, you don't appreciate your hometown. You only appreciate it when you go back. Mm. But then I also, like, so I, I, I grew up in a... Uh, uh, a town that's, that's a, a, you know, a bit kind of nicer than Newton Haven maybe is in the film. But um, I would still be, you know, like most of my, like, ideas and maybe the fact that all of the stories I've done at all got some level of escapism is probably because it wasn't a particularly kind of, like, eventful town. It was, like, sort of very sort of peaceful and rural and boring. Is anybody here from Wells in Somerset? Okay, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not offending anybody. Um, but I think that's the thing is, I think sort of like, you know, s some people like if they just want to get out of their hometown and then they never look back. And so, you, but Simon's character has romanticized this place and probably romanticized it a lot more than it. Uh, I, I think I did that actually in some ways. Like I had maybe not romanticized the town, but when I used to be a teenager and I used to hang out with my friends, like I've, it's usually the summer just before you leave home is the summer where people are as thick as thieves and like you're with, I used to go out to the, pretty much the same pub every night with my five friends for an entire summer. And you sort of think at that moment, just before you all go your separate ways, is like, we're gonna be friends forever. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't often work out that way. Yeah. That said, all of those guys came, I invited them all to the premiere of The World's End in, in July, which was great. So I like, they all came back together, it was fun. And then did what two two pubs afterwards? <laughs> yes. You're just getting worse and worse. This pub crawl <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Next time will be just one pub. Yeah. Um, so uh, that scene as well. There's a, there's another key line I think, which is uh, it's only boring because we're not there. Is that again something that that maybe you thought as a as a kid growing up once you left your hometown? I think so. I think there's that thing where like if you you know like um 
sometimes there's that um like and this is this is a silly thing to even think would be possible sometimes when you go back to your hometown and you sort of it, it's a bittersweet feeling to realize that you've had zero impact on it that nobody <laughs> nobody even remembered you were there or that you know that it's like it, it's not so much that you never left it's like you were never there and so that's kind of a big thing in the movie is that simon's character at least is sort of it's like he expects this kind of ticker tape parade yeah. when he goes home but of course nobody remembers him and i think some of those things like sort of like uh um, inspired me in that there are there are things in 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 the movie where um, I, there was that particular summer where I was in the same pub every night. Yeah. I felt like me and the the publican were best friends. But then when I went back, like a couple of like summers later, he didn't remember my name. Oh, so it's just a, like a little detail like that that kind of like of course like there's been loads of other people in there and like sort of but you think like sort of like oh we're like so we're like this. And he doesn't know who you are. Like, uh, uh, and a similar thing happened that inspired a scene in the movie where uh, I wouldn't say like, it was a school bully, but somebody I definitely had a like a violent altercation with once. Like, it wasn't he wasn't somebody who plagued me as much as the Shane Hawkins does to Eddie Marzan. Yeah. But another thing that when I like, came back maybe three years later, he completely blanked me, and I couldn't figure out whether I was annoyed that he didn't recognize me or pleased that he didn't recognize me. <laughs> but either way, it perplexed and it perplexed and bemused and annoyed me. And so things like that that just kind of you start to sort of feel like, oh, am I in my hometown or has this been has the town been completely replaced yeah, yeah, yeah. by facsimiles? So it's just sort of my overactive imagination that. <laughs> You know, Might be true, so, though. You never yeah. know. Um, but when you do go back, because you have had an impact now on Wales, there's a Hot Fuzz walking tour, for example. Yes. Have you been on that? No. The Hot Fuzz walking tour would take about 15 seconds. <laughs> it's quite a small town. But it's good, though. What, what is good, if you ever go to Wales in Somerset and you're a Hot Fuzz fan, you will find all of the locations like immediately next to each other. It, the, the geography in the film is is exactly what's in the town. So it's yeah. quite a good place to visit because sometimes you go to locations and they look nothing like they do in the movie, but that one does, you know. Cathedral, pub, swan, pretty much it. The, in this one, uh, in this film, uh, is anybody from Welling Garden City or Letchworth? There we there go. There you go. So you, as, uh, 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 like, uh, Letchworth is very much on the big screen in this movie. And in fact, <laughs> pub number eight, uh, The Mermaid, is actually their cinema, <laughs> right. uh, the Broadway so when they go into, it's where the kind of the school disco is, is actually the cinema. And on Thursday, because we promised we'd go back, me and Simon are doing it. Our final Q&A is in that cinema oh in wow, Letchworth. Okay. So we're going back to Newton Haven on Thursday night. Um, but uh, yeah, so I can't remember what the question was, sorry. <laughs> the question was about the, the impact you've had in your hometown. But that's, that's moving on a little bit because this movie, a little bit like Sean, takes place in a very compressed time frame. And that was something very deliberate for you, wasn't it? You wanted it to, uh, to take place over one night. Yeah, I like films that are set in one night. I mean, Shaun of the Dead is sort of over, kind of seems like it's over a 48-hour period, or, you know, maybe it's 24, I guess, if you... It depends when the prologue is. But this one, like, once they're on, on the... Once they leave, it's all in, like, one night. So, um, I, I like those kind of films, and I like sort of films where, like, a night out becomes kind of like a descent into hell. So it was like the idea of doing one of those movies. Mm. And uh, we have some time for some questions from you guys now. So if you have anything you want to ask Edgar, we've got a couple of roving microphones. I see a hand shooting up immediately over there. So uh, there's a lady in the third row. Thank you. Hi. Um, thanks for coming, by the way. Um, I was just wondering, who do you, like, within the five main leads, who do you see most in yourself? And who, if you wanted to be, who would you like to be in that, like, 
um, I think what you end up doing is that myself and Simon put different parts of ourselves into everybody. So, like, Eddie Marzan has that story with the bully, which is a sort of an amalgamation of something that happened to me and something that happened to Simon. Like, um, I guess there are parts of us in Gary King, like, the, maybe we won't completely divulge, but definitely that we, we have sympathy for that character and we, there are elements of his plight that we absolutely, um, you know, empathize with. But then on the flip side, Paddy Considine's character has that thing where he... Well, there's an amalgamation there because, like, um, there's a thing where Simon has been out with the best friend's sister, and I had done that. And then my f other friend had been out with her as well, so it created this awful, like, sort of awkward, like... Not a love triangle, but, like, a love square. <laughs> and... Um, and me and my friend used to, this is a terrible thing that teenagers do. We just uh, we just uh, wind our friend up by talking about his sister. So the thing that Martin Freeman does in the film, we're just going like, you know, he just doesn't want to hear it. So there's lots of elements of like our real life that go into all of them. But then on the flip side, Martin Freeman is like the character that he has, who's like a, like a young yuppie. There was this kid at school who was the, when I was, you know, 16 in like 1990, had a mobile phone which it's school, it's a secondary school. I didn't even go to public school. It was like a, like a comprehensive. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, but I was sort of both absolutely like befuddled by it and everybody teased him about it. But I think everybody was secret jealous because you're thinking that kid is going to be so rich when he's older. And he was. It's like, so, you know, sometimes when you're jealous of that person who seems like he's got it all figured out employment-wise and business-wise yeah. and they seem like a proper grown-up um, whilst you're still like a little kid, and he was definitely that guy. So Martin Freeman is sort of based on him, of somebody that was easy to kind of tease uh, because they were like a yuppie in mm. waiting, but also somebody that richer than you'll ever be. <laughs> like somebody's just got it figured out. So just lots of elements of different people, you know. And I think sort of like it's interesting with the kind of characters, is even when the actors come on board, kind of the first thing we did when we rehearsed the movie is sat around and talked about being that age and the age we are now and, and so many of the other actors, whether it was Eddie, Martin, Paddy, would relate to different people in the script, even if it wasn't their character. It's like, oh, I know a guy like that. Uh, this happened to me, you know. And everybody had their version of, like, they keep mentioning in the script there's this hot girl called Becky Salt that they keep mentioning. And, uh, like, everybody around the table had a different, like, girl at school that they were never with. And what's funny is, like, that... The, uh, she, she was somebody that I, I didn't... It was the name of a girl uh, that I went to school with, except it wasn't somebody that I fancied. My friend fancied her. So when I think of the name of, like, a hot girl, I think of my friend going, oh, my God, Becky Soul. <laughs> there wasn't so... So if she ever sees the film, she's going to think that I have a crush on her. And I say, no, it's not. Nick Field had a crush on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all easily yeah. cleared up over Facebook, to be honest. Yeah, or she could just listen to this, <laughs> and it'll all be sorted out. Oh, yeah, don't put this bit on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> land is out there. On no, Twitter don't. Already. I might get sued. <laughs> what about Nick Frost? Is, uh, is there a part of you in Nick Frost, he said, looking askance to camera? Um, I guess so. I mean, like... In Andy, obviously not, not Nick. Yeah, I think there's something where kind of like um, in terms of having been on the other side of it where like sort of a friend of yours is in some kind of trouble and refuses help. I've definitely been in that situation as well. And that's sort of what Andy's character is, is he's trying to kind of like you get this where you arrive, like the scene we just saw is you get the sense that he has tried to help in the past mm. and has been rebuffed. And so he kind of 
you know, is, is, is has given up on Simon's character. Yeah. So I think I, both of us have been in that situation as well. Okay. Uh, any more questions for Edgar? There is a, yeah, there's a person yeah, right beside you. Perfect. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, firstly, can I just say, Edgar, you are awesome and I love you. <laughs> just throwing it out there. And, um, yeah, I was wondering, like, if you could give any advice to like young filmmakers today, like what would be like the most important thing you'd say to do? Like what, what would be your main point? I love you too, by the way. Thank you. Um, um, I don't know. I think sort of like in this day and age, you have more platforms to get your work out there than when I was making. When I used to make amateur films, like there were some like sort of film festivals around the country like the, there still is like the co-op young filmmakers festival which was good and occasionally there'd be like tv kind of like competitions where send in your movies and stuff and i actually was very lucky that i i, I got onto one of those competitions um, on tv it was a, one of the first animation films that i'd made but in this day and age you know you have like youtube and vimeo and you have a chance of like sort of if you make a short film and it works people all over the world could see it but I'd say that the, I, I just think the thing to do is try and do something that's unique or something that just kind of marks you out as a little bit different. And, um, you know, it's a bit more difficult in London, actually, in terms of I was I was lucky in a way. Or I didn't realize I was lucky at the time. But um, when I made my first film when I was 20, which is a very low budget, like Western, it was very, very silly. But like one of the own, like the few sort of talking points about it was the fact that I'd done it in Somerset. That it was like sort of this kind of like, almost like this silly, silly anecdotal quality to it. It was like, hey, have you heard about this kid who made this Western in Somerset? Like, so that straight away was actually, be, being in a sort of small pond was actually sort of a good thing. Because, you know, then coming to London, you know, you're one of tens of thousands of aspiring filmmakers. So there's that aspect to it. But I think the thing is, is just to find your own niche. And the other thing I'd say that's really important is don't be as scared of failing. Like, don't be scared of making a mistake. And, like, if your first short or your first feature isn't perfect, it's absolutely fine. And you can... I wasn't happy with, like, a lot of the first things that I did, but you just have to kind of keep playing through. I think some people kind of, like, get so frustrated at the process or that they can't put on screen what's in their brain they get frustrated with themselves or they give up and you shouldn't give up like you've got to keep plowing ahead and you've got to keep finding you know get to the place where you're what you're seeing in your head and what's on screen are the same thing fantastic uh, who's next yes please here in the front row thank you uh, hi there. Um, I'm a Canadian. I've been living in the UK for about eight years. Um, and in that time, there's a lot of British movies that I've seen that never make it big across the pond. Yours have, and we're obviously quite well known, but they're still very British in their, in their sense of humor, I think. Do you ever feel any sort of pressure to sort of Americanize it to make it, to aim for that sort of bigger population, bigger market? Or have you found a sort of a key that has, has given you that success where others maybe haven't? Well, I mean, when we made Sure on the Dead, we didn't know whether it was going to, you know, we hoped it would do okay in this country, and, and we didn't really have any plans beyond that. And originally, it was going to go straight to uh, video and DVD in the States. But then it was actually through, like, a lot of the kind of film kind of websites, like Ain't It Cool and stuff, that started doing reviews of it that, like, Universal, who already owned it and focused, like, then gave it a theatrical release. 
the good thing and the thing I'm very proud of in a way is that like n th that none of them are Americanized for like international audiences and actually World's End which I think is kind of the most British of the three was our biggest opener in the States and I, I've, I'm incredibly proud of that fact because it was something where a film that's shot in Letchworth like is showing on 1500 screens in the state it was amazing like so I with these movies I'm proud that we didn't kind of make them any more international and I think to be honest American audiences appreciated that because it was something that was like different I think sometimes when you see like British films that are Americanized or, or have a much more obvious um, ploy to get kind of international interest sometimes it comes off as fake you know so I personally like I'm glad that we stuck to our guns you know Fantastic. Anyone else? Oh, there's lots of people. There's a person right here, right at the back. Lady at the back. The third row backwards. Thank you. And then we'll go to the people standing up. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm actually American. So, um, and I loved it. So thank you. Um, this. I don't know how to word this. Um, the whole movie. It's. It's kind of a bit of humorous. And then you get to the end. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody. And it, it's. It's still humorous, but in. It's still very kind of philosophical and, and kind of deep. If if that's the right word. Yeah, and I think you know what I'm talking about where there's this moment and it actually had a lot of really deep meaning and you just it just kind of hits you and like what was it, it what was it like to write that to go from such sort of a quick humor to that moment at the end if you know which one I'm talking about I yeah. don't want to spoil it. Well, I think the thing is is that um I think we just wanted to write something that was quite honest in terms of what kind of happens to Simon's character and I think that if you see it a second time the seeds of what is happening are there all the way through. So I don't think it's a total shock, even if you sort of think about the opening scene. So it was just something where, like, we didn't want to be intentionally dark. We just wanted to sort of treat the character with some sort of emotional honesty in a way. And that you sort of see a character who's clearly got problems all the way through, and then you reveal why. And so, but then the kind of, not to spoil it, but then the flip around is in the final scene his flaws are like what makes him human and suddenly that's actually you know in a way can be a positive thing as well so we wanted to sort of like Simon's character in this film is definitely the most like sort of troubled of the three characters he's played but we we have a lot of empathy for him and we wanted it's like seeing a man sort of on a path to self-destruction and then you want to sort of figure out in the last scene is how can he possibly pull out of this nosedive and how he, how he can find sort of personal happiness in the end, you know? So that's kind of what it was about. So, you know, it was something that was one of the, it, it wasn't like we, it was always in the original story and we always thought that this is what we wanted to do and do something that was quite, you know, um, raw and honest. And I think so, some people, when they say that they, they were surprised at how dark it was, I always feel like the, you know, like Shaun of the Dead gets pretty dark in the last kind of like third, you know, with the mother scene and stuff. So, it, uh, uh, you know, t to us, it's kind of like important to, not kind of treat the character so frivolously and that there was sort of honesty and some sort of like um, emotional uh, gravitas to it. Was that something you wanted I felt, to... I felt bad using the word gravitas. <laughs> That's good, why. gravitas is good. <laughs> was that something you wanted to not shy away from necessarily in Hot Fuzz, but Hot Fuzz has a, even at the end, has a very playful quality. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the sort of like... It, it's just sort of what you're feeling at the time in a way, sort of like what feels right for that particular story. Out of the three of them, Hot Fuzz is probably the silliest, yeah, for sure. Mm. But, um, you know, we like, we like the idea that this one is dark chocolate. 
<laughs> We've uh, bits time of chili inside. <laughs> We've time for two more questions. There's a gentleman over here with the right by the barrier. Thank you. Hello. Um, really, really enjoyed the film. So thank you very much. Um, quick question: What's your favourite film of this year? Oh, I I loved not not a, a predictable answer, but a worthy one. But uh, Gravity. I saw it. I've seen it twice on the big screen. I think it's fantastic. It's such a piece of work. Ironically, the same composer as The World's End. So, like, um, Stephen Price, who did... Um, who was actually... It was my music editor on Scott Pilgrim. And he got the gig on uh, Gravity as the music editor because Alfonso liked Scott Pilgrim. And then, during the three-and-a-half-year production of that, <laughs> he scored Attack the Block. And then Alfonso saw that and said, oh, you should do the music for Gravity. And I think the studio was saying, oh, you, you could get somebody bigger. But Alfonso stuck by him. And now he'll most likely, I'll put money on it, that he gets an Oscar nomination. And so I'm very, very proud of him. Fantastic. Uh, we've got time. Yes, please, here right in the very, very middle. Thank you. These movies were kind of like your babies. I mean, you made them from scratch. And now you're working with Marvels for some, something someone else created originally. I just want to know what it's like for you with two different processes. I think it's nice in a way. I mean, I did an, another movie, Scott Pilgrim, that was an adaptation, and uh, it's nice to kind of move between the two. I, I like it, you know, like, and, and uh, it, it, the adaptation process is, you know, like sort of just as challenging as doing an original screenplay and, and just as rewarding. So it's just like a, a diff it is a different process, but you want to kind of be respectful to the source but also do something, you know, kind of different with it, especially with this one, you know. Um, so, and you know, you want to make sure you got the blessing of the original creator and stuff as well. So that's kind of important. And I've been lucky with both of them to kind of have met the people who, I mean, on Scott Pilgrim, I worked very closely with the original writer. And on the Marvel film, I like, I've met Stanley a bunch of times. Um, so, who is exactly as you hope he would be. <laughs> um, so it's good, yeah. It's nice to change it up. So I, that said, I love writing original screenplays. And I definitely have want to do more in the future, but it's nice to kind of do two completely different things back to back. You say you like to work with partners, and you're obviously working with Joe Cornish on, on Ant-Man and, and Tintin and Michael Bacall and Scott Pilgrim. Do you work in the same way as you do with Simon, flip chart, and people in, in the same room as each other, or do you modify your, your habits for the writing partner? Yeah, I think sort of slightly different with each person. Um, but it's good to write comedy with somebody else. I, I wrote one like, screenplay on my own in the last couple of years. And whilst I'm pleased with the finished product, it was easily the toughest thing to write because there's nobody to bounce off in the room. I mean, it wasn't specifically a comedy, but even so, you know, it's so much easier. If you're an aspiring writer and you find it difficult, especially if you're writing comedy, find a partner, find somebody else to write with. It's, that makes it such a more fun experience, you know, Mm. Somebody to just share the workload with and just bounce off, you know? Do you have, a, like, an acid test for jokes? If one laughs and the other one doesn't, how does it make it into the script? I don't know. Me and Joe have a thing that, like, I w like some, I if somebody recorded it and played it back to us, I'd be deeply impressed, where we, we just read <laughs> everything out all the time. Like, we sort of just, our sort of litmus test is just to kind of keep reading the scripts and doing all of the different voices, which... Uh, it would be a, a magically embarrassing thing to witness. <laughs> <laughs> you should have heard us doing the entire script of Tintin. <laughs> I wish that was on the DVD. It's just us doing all the voices. Um, How's your Captain Haddock? I, I think I did Captain Haddock, but I think it's, it's, it's never not funny 
doing a breathy Tintin voice. <laughs> Come on, Snowy. Like, it's always fun. <laughs> uh, Edgar said he's happy to do a few more questions. Yeah. So let's get those hands up in the air. Okay, yes, please. Superman t-shirt right at the very front. Thank you. Uh, aside from the actors and actresses you've worked with already, uh, who would you most like to direct or work with now? Oh, wow. Um, what, in this, in this country or... Um it's always a thing. Uh, I tell you one thing about in this country. People always kind of say with the movies, say, "Oh, do you just write parts for your all your friends?" And like, not quite, because there's so many people that like I'd love to. You know, in in the world's end, there's almost like there wasn't as many parts as the, there wasn't as many speaking parts as Hot Fuzz. So there's lots of people that I'd still want to like. Um, I'd love to do something with Julian Barrett. Like, so he's been one of my friends for like years, and I've worked with him before on a couple of occasions. But I'd love to kind of get him in one of the movies somewhere, if there was a part that was right for him, you know. So um, I'm trying to think who else. Like, sometimes I think as well, people assume that we've fallen out with actors if they haven't been. And Like, somebody <laughs> asked me, a journalist, I said, have you fallen out with Pete Saravena? Which is like, no, he's one of my best friends. Why? He goes, oh, because he hasn't been in the last two movies. I said, oh, it just wasn't, you know, the right part for him. You know, He's in the special thanks. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that, is that just as a, as a way of saying, sorry, we didn't have a part? Or <laughs> did he do anything particularly on, the, on this one? Um, oh, you know what? Yes, he did. He actually did a voice for it. And then we changed it because we kind of came up with a, a, a different idea. So he was very sort of like, uh, like it, was, it was a tiny thing. And then it, in, in the film, it made more sense for Bill Nye to do the voice. Oh, okay. So he okay. did a sort of off-screen voice. And then we had a later idea. And, and Pete was completely cool with the singing. You know, because if you watch the movie, you'll notice that Bill Nye's voice is in all the way through the movie yeah. before he yeah. finally appears, you know. Okay. So was that seen maybe in the, in the uh, Trusty Servant, perhaps? Is that yeah, exactly. Okay. And there's I another one as well. Okay, I got you. Uh, so another questions for Edgar? Let's stand in front row with this gentleman here. And then we'll go to this lady here. Uh, hi. Uh, loved the film, by the way. It was Thank great. You. Uh, did you um, originally set out to have this war to have the world's end as like a sci-fi theme with it? How you know Shaun the Dead had zombies and Hot Fuzz was like a uh, cop, you know, action film. So did you set out with the idea of doing this as more of a sci-fi kind of thing when you were writing it? Yeah, the sci-fi angle came in because um, a lot of those sort of invasion films of the fifties and sixties. They're usually like political ones where usually it's about most of those 50s and 60s ones post-war are about like if they're American ones, they're about the threat of communism and stuff. Um, but we wanted to do something like this where the, what the, the, the no, I don't want to spoil it too much for people that haven't seen it. But like what they represent is like sort of like a what they see as like sort of a, a perfect form or like sort of like an, an, a more efficient like human race. And so when that finally comes down to the wire, like Simon's character, who is incredibly flawed, is like their sort of the person that they want to turn the most. And so, you know, again, not to spoil too much, but the sort of the, what, where the sort of the, the film twists in a way is that like a character who's rightly criticized throughout the entire movie, Simon's character, then almost becomes the model human because of his flaws. So that was something where we always thought that would be a great kind of premise of using that kind of um, alien invaders, body snatchers kind of uh, theme of like both like the perfect human and, and even like the sort of the um, the perfect form like frozen in time, you know, like the idea of like having younger bodies and stuff. It was just something that like in the movie, like what the characters are running away from is growing up. 
you know, like there's li literally a scene where Simon is running in the other direction from being like a perfect grown up, you know. So that's kind of what the film's about. There we go. Uh, yes, please, over here. You, like obviously you've worked in like feature films and then like TV, like smaller short films and TV. I was wondering like what's the biggest difference for you working in the film industry and then working like TV series? Um, there's not that much difference really. Like sort of, um, you've got the same pressures really. I mean, no matter like what the the budget level is, you're always going to have the same problems. One is the British weather. <laughs> the sun is always going to go down no matter what the budget of the film is so it's always funny like even if the budgets on things go up and stuff you'll still have the same problems as you would on a on a short on a TV series on a film is that at some point it's going to rain and you're going to have to change your plans and at some point the sun is going to go down and you have to change your plans or this, you're shooting night shoots and the sun is going to come up and there's the, usually the, those, are, those are your three biggest problems of making a movie like mostly over here but anywhere so it's always um just uh, the thing is, is that like it, it, the 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 ideas all will always exceed the budget, and that's a probably a good. It's a good thing because then you have to make creative solutions. If you got way too much money, then you can end up with you know. Sometimes you see movies at the cinema where it just seems like it's overly extravagant, where nobody has said no, you know, and that's not necessarily a good thing. So having limitations is a good thing because you have to come up with creative solutions. I know the hot fuzz was tricky for you with the weather. It's so. always tricky. Like, yeah. sort of, you know, it was like this, th this film was like so cold making it, but it, it, weirdly that kind of, <coughs> doing the action scenes and stuff, doing all the running scenes, nobody complained that much because it was better to be running than standing. Because <laughs> <laughs> so it was this time that, last year, wasn't it? All of that, yeah, we were yeah. still filming this time last year. So all of that, um, all of that kind of like, the sort of running sequences were sort of yeah. like, uh, I think the actors, enjoyed that more than standing around. <laughs> but was there also part of you that uh, wanted to design uh, a film with 12 interior locations and then some more interiors and then some more interiors on top of that as well? Just getting well, out of the cold. What's maybe really stupid is that on Hot Fuzz, we shot the scene in a pub in Beaconsfield. It's a beautiful pub, very small. And so, you know, you're all crammed into this tiny location trying to do like a shootout. And I remember saying to my producer... I said, I never want to shoot in a British pub ever again. <laughs> and then I came up with the idea for this film. So <laughs> never say never. You Absolutely. might shoot in 12 pubs. <laughs> There's a hand <coughs> up right there behind the camera. There's a gentleman. Do you find, how do you find working with Steven Spielberg? I suppose is the question. Was he good? Was he uh, masterful? Was he, what was he it, like? <laughs> it was great. If you, uh, if you know what he's referring to, uh, me and Joe Cornish worked on uh, a couple of drafts of Tintin. But he was amazing. He was exactly as you hope he would be. And he was, like, really, really nice to us. And um, it was just... Um, there was one time when... Uh, this is the thing. when it's, it's so weird. It's the only time I've ever written for anybody else. But um, I remember we would, me and Joe were explaining this, like, new joke to him. And I was sort of acting it out. And... And because I was acting out and like be, being like Tintin, I would keep kind of treating like Spielberg like he was Haddock and kept like touching him <laughs> and stuff and doing the lines. And after I finished, like Joe said, why do you keep touching Steven Spielberg? <laughs> and I was like, because I want to see if he's real. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just this thing. I don't think many, many writers kind of like feel the need to kind of keep like touching his arm all the time. So, but he was, he was incredibly, incredibly nice and continues to be nice. And he was a big fan of this film, which was so sweet, you know. Excellent.
Do you ever get overly, oh my God, I'm in a room with Steven Spielberg, that's Steven Spielberg kind of feeling? Um, yeah. I mean, how can you not, you know? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd be bricking it. It's always that thing, but it's usually that thing, like, no matter how, like, experienced you are. It's the same with, like, this is going to be a bit of a spoiler, but fuck it. Like, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan is in this movie. But it would always be that funny thing, and, like, Pierce is amazing, but it would just be, a, like, a running joke. The same with Steven Spielberg, that if he left the room, that either me or Nick or Simon would look at each other and go, It'd just be a running joke of somebody to say, James Bond. So it'd always be a sort of like a running joke is that like, you know, if um, like uh, like Stephen had left the room for me and Joe to go, (laughs) just to mouth it. Stephen, I call him Mr. Spielberg. Uh, We've got time for two last questions. There's a gentleman right here by the pillar. Thank you. And then we'll go, there's a gentleman with a cap. Um, No spoilers for me either. But... um, (laughs) Towards the end of the film, it almost feels like the story could keep going and um, with different themes and a different feel completely. I just wanted your opinion on sequels, sequels made from your favourite films and in your own work. I think um, all three of the movies, like Sean, Hot Fuzz and The World's End, they all have endings where you could imagine a sequel, but I, I always feel like the best endings are one where they promise more but they don't necessarily have a sequel. And there are some films that have sequels that I kind of, like, even if the sequels are okay, you sort of wish that they didn't have them because I'd rather have the end of the first one. Like, Back to the Future is that two and three are, are, are good, but number one is great. And the ending is great. And the ending promises more, but you don't really need to see anymore. Like, uh, the ending of the original Halloween is great, but you do not need the other nine. <laughs> it's like sort of like it's like end on the first one. That's a great ending. And also, as soon as you have the second one, it devalues the ending of the first one. You know, so I I I think that they're best. You know, like the the ending. If it promises more, then that sequel exists in your imagination and nowhere else. Have you and Simon steeled yourself for the inevitable? In about ten years' time, you open up a, a trade iPad or whatever paper is printed on in those days, and you look and it says, "Shaun of the Dead reboot." I think in we could probably put the kibosh on those. Yeah? I think. You think? Yeah. I, so well, we've definitely done it with with other things. Like I think somebody wanted to do a TV version of it, and we were we said no. <laughs> so um, I would hope that we would be able to stop that. So seventy five years time when it's in the public domain, <laughs> and we're all traveling around in jetpacks, then it'll happen. Yeah, but we'll be dead. Be we okay. won't be because it's seventy five years time. It'll be the future. We'll be all be glorious. <laughs> uh, we've got time for one last question. I think there was a gentleman with a cap right at the very very back. Hi, Edgar. Um, we've chatted a lot about your writing process, but not so much about what happens when you get onto set. And I was really wondering if you've kind of found any sort of your own styles, your own unorthodox, maybe, um, ways to direct and get the performance that you want from actors, because a lot of the time you can set up for three hours and then, you know, it's meant to be just go time. And I know, in fact, that you say go instead of action. I... I yeah, on one film I did that, yeah. On Pilgrim? Yeah. Is that because it was, uh, like, energetic or...? Well, there's this theory that sort of, like... Um, I used to do that when I was a kid. I used to say go instead of action. And there's a sort of theory that action in itself has two syllables. It's better to just go, go, you know. So we did do that on that film. But I think the thing to do... I like doing lots of rehearsal before with the actors because then there shouldn't be that much discussion once you come onto set. But then when you're ready to go, you get going. And I think a really good thing to do is try and, like, just get a shot done in the first hour. Like, 
if I was like waiting around for three hours at the start of the day, it would drive me insane. So I like to try and get started. It's almost like a competition is like how quickly can you do the first shot? Every day. Every day. Every day. Like because I think it's sort of it just like sort of it starts the the with the right momentum. So I think the thing to do is to try and figure out a way, whatever it is, is like, let's get a shot done. If you're starting at eight. Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, news editor for Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. Hey, everyone. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and now The World's End, the three flavors Cornetta trilogy, three of the funniest films of the last 10 years, all linked by one thing. They were directed by Edgar Wright. And before we meet the man, let's have a look at the trailer for The World's End. And we're back. Just like the five musketeers. Three musketeers, isn't it? Well, nobody knows how many there were, really, do they? You know that the three musketeers is a fiction, right? Written by Alexander Dumas. A lot of people are saying that about the Bible these days. What, that it was written by Alexander Dumas? Oh, don't be daft, Steve. It was written by Jesus. We were there, yeah? Let's do this! They haven't seen each other in 20 years. I'm free to do what I want. But tonight, they're returning to their hometown to finish the ultimate bar crawl. This is our chance to finally conquer the Golden Mile. 12 pubs, 12 pints. And this time, they're going to make it to the last bar, the world's end. Let's go! What do you recommend? Beer. We'll have five of those, please. Four of those and a tap water. What? Look who it is. Wow, long time. Gary. Willkommen. Bienvenue. Welcome. Well, it's weird, isn't it? You come back and everything's sort of different. I suggest you get on your way. Welcome home, boys. It's not us that's changed. It's the town. What are you doing? It's all right. I'm not trying to have sex with you. There's something I need to tell you right now. Unless you do want to have sex, in which case I'll tell you afterwards. Tell me right now. What did he say, Sam? Newton Haven has been taken over by robots. Did you believe him? She head back to London. A, we're all drunk. B, we've got blood on our hands. It's more like ink. We've got ink on our hands. Ah! <laughs> From the creators of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Let's 